Good morning. My name's Tony Baker, and I am the lead pastor here at Gateway. Uh, we're so excited that you're here. I can just picture all of you huddled, uh, you know, huddled around your TVs, huddled around your computers, your devices, uh, sitting there, listening, watching, worshiping. Uh, it's a new day. It's a different day. And uh, one of the things that's really, as I'm here, and man, I wish you could have been here. That worship was just incredible in this room, and I know it was there for you too. Um, it just is going to make us all that much more want to see one another, be together, be in community. Uh, I believe that. Uh, if you're watching and you're all huddled up, do me a favor right now and uh, uh, grab your phone. There, You can chat with the host. Just kind of like tell us how many people are in your, in your house listening, watching. Tell us how many of you are there. We'd love to know that just so that we get an idea of just how many people we're reaching with this. Um, it's an exciting time, different time, definitely. Hopefully you like the new format. We're trying to make it a little bit more friendly so you can see the people here as well as see the words um, and the slides that are you typically see up on our screens when you're in the service. Uh, we're doing everything we can to make it better for you. Uh, today we continue this three-week series, uh, three weeks, week three of a four-week series called uh, The Bad Boys of Easter. Uh, this week we're going to get into uh, a fella that we typically don't hear a lot about. We hear about his uh, partner, the other criminal on the cross, but today we're going to hear about the one who didn't get to go to paradise. But before I get too much into that, let me start by saying this. Things are not always as they appear. Things are not always as they appear. Do you remember when you were in junior high? Do you remember when you were in high school? Think back. I know some of you got to think way back. Some of us don't have to think as far back. But remember when you were in high school and junior high, and remember those days in school and how you viewed the world. Think about that. How you viewed the world in general. How you viewed money. There's a reason parents say to their kids, money doesn't grow on trees. Think about how you viewed money. Think about how you viewed time, how you spent your time, the things you wanted to do, what was fun, what wasn't fun. Think about back in junior high, girlfriends and boyfriends and friends and enemies and how you viewed the world in general. Raise your hand if you've ever said, I wish I could go back and relive those days. Yes, yes, we're all raising our hand, and there's a reason why. We're all raising our hand because we've all said, I wish I knew then what I know now. I wish I knew then what I know now. Because you look back at how you viewed the world, and you realize things are not always as they appear. Now, as parents, how many times have you tried to convince your child, your kids, to see things the way you see them? Because you're living on the other side of that. You have a different perspective of your world. You have a different view of the world. How many of us parents have tried to get our children to see things the way we see them? And we do that because we want to protect them. We do that because we want the best for them. We do that because we don't want them to make the same mistakes that we made. And so we have this different view, and we understand things are not always as they appear. 
And so we have this different view of life than our kids. And we try to get our kids to see things the way we see them. Think about your conversations with them, about their grades, about their money, about their friends, about their work. And it's amazing how different we all see the world. How exhausted you are of trying to convince your kids that algebra is important. And maybe you're not doing that because you don't see the importance of it. I remember I was doing a project with my youngest daughter, Katie, who's 15 now. And I needed to measure a triangle and cut a piece of wood in a triangle. But I needed to know what one of the lengths of one of the sides of the triangle was. And since I'm so far gone from geometry and math and all that, I asked Katie and I said, hey, Katie, what is the Pythagorean theorem? Right? And Katie's here with us today. If we had a camera, we'd zoom in on her. And she's like, no. It's amazing. Introverts are loving this right now. They're like, hey, I actually really like going to church now, right? Uh, People aren't there, then I love going. But uh, she's here with us today. And I asked Katie, what's the Pythagorean theorem? And she realized in a real-life situation that that math was important. And if you have ever raised teenagers, daughters... (laughs) I have three wonderful, beautiful daughters. One is 21, one is 18, and one is 15. And if you've ever raised teenage daughters, then you know what I'm talking about when you can say as a father that you did not like their boyfriend. Do you remember that moment in your daughter's life where she had a boyfriend that you just did not like? Of course, my two daughters that have boyfriends right now, those boys are probably wondering, is he talking about me? Of which I'll say, that's right. So, think about that moment where she has a boyfriend and that boyfriend breaks up with her. This is how things are not always as they appear. Because as a parent, you're going, Oh, honey, and and she's crushed and she's depressed and she's crying and you're hugging her and and you're and you're trying to sympathize and you're trying to say, honey, you know, and and and, but the whole time inside you're going. Yes, I was just praying for this day, right? And if you're a daughter and you don't think your parents or father does that, then you know now that he does. Think about that moment. When you leave her room after she tells you that her boyfriend, who you don't like, breaks up. And you start a happy dance. And you're like, let's kill... The fatted calf. Let's call a celebration, right? And everyone here is cracking up. My wife cannot believe that I put that dance on there. That is the happy dance. And, and this is what I mean. Things are not always as they appear. You can see in her life that that guy was not right for her. And she took her a while to figure it out. Things are not always as they appear. Well, today... I want to talk to you about a relationship that may not always be as it appears. I'm talking about your relationship between life and God. 
I want to talk about a relationship between life and God. Today, the relationship between your life and God is critical for you to understand this other criminal on the cross. For most of us, these two are very different things. We experience them in different ways, as one and the same sometimes. But sometimes our life bleeds over into our view of God, and how our life goes is how we view who God is. Here's how most of us think. And I know this because I think this way, or I have thought this way in my life. And I think most of us have. If life is good, then God is good. And when life is not good, then maybe God's not so good. And this is where the relationship between life and God get confused. Disappointment with my life quickly becomes disappointment with God. When things aren't going right, when things aren't going well, when my dreams don't come true, when my job disappears, and maybe you're experiencing that now. I mean, two weeks ago, we were in one of the best economies of our lifetime, and we had strong jobs and strong economy, and and things were going well. And I mean, in the snap of a finger, everything was changed. They tell us almost 4 million people filed for bankruptcy, or not bankruptcy, filed for unemployment last month. When things are going well, God is good. But when things aren't going so well, maybe God's not so good. Maybe you've asked, where's God? Maybe your dreams haven't come true. Maybe your marriage that you started out and you had all these dreams and and the honeymoon time and period and it was so awesome and now that's gone and maybe you've lost a marriage or that marriage has dissipated or maybe you're in a marriage that's struggling and you think, wow, when things were going really well, God is good to me. But what do you think of God when things aren't going well? Maybe your health becomes a problem. Disappointment will set in. Disappointment sets in. And it seems like we just can't get a break. It seems to be working for other people. Things look good for them. God's good to them. But what's wrong with me? And see, that's when we lose our perspective, and we see life, and however that goes, must be how God is. And things are not always as they appear. What I've experienced after a while, you begin to doubt God. And when things aren't going well, you begin to doubt Him. And then the doubt turns to This assumption that maybe God's against me. And then that doubt and that feeling of disappointment turns to something else. Then you begin to believe that God is not really good. And then when you don't think that God is good, then God must not exist. And then you work yourself into a situation where you just stop trying with God altogether. I have met people, and I know people, who have lived very hard lives 
Hard things have happened to them. Bad things have happened to them. Difficult things have happened to them. They are struggling and wrestling with some very difficult things. And when you look at their life, you wonder, is God good? Because in your mind, you want to say, if God is good and loving and caring, then why the suffering? Why the challenge? If it's not you, maybe you're not there today. But let me tell you this. You live with someone like this. You work with someone like this. You live next to someone like this. You have friends and family, the person next door. These are the people in your life who have become very disappointed with life. And I can promise you, if they're disappointed with life, they're more than likely disappointed with God. Perhaps you've even stopped believing. These people become disappointed because their dreams have been shattered, their plans and work. And it gets worse. Get this, it gets worse. Because when life doesn't go well and you stop believing in God, then you begin to make a series and a a string of decisions in your life that are just bad. And you make life worse. And here's here's the irony in all this, is that, is that when you're in this situation where you've equated your life circumstances and experience with who God is, and you have this doubt and disappointment and this lack of belief and trust in a good God, what happens then is, the irony of it is, you make these decisions and get yourself into a position where when you really, really need God, you keep Him at arm's length because you don't trust Him. You doubt Him. We're too proud to bend a knee to a God that we don't trust and that we don't believe. You gave God a chance. He did not come through. And so you stop believing and you stop giving Him a chance. Listen, things are not always as they appear. So this is the case with our bad boy of Easter today. He is the other criminal on the cross. We don't know a lot about him. As a matter of fact, we don't know his name. Somewhere in his life, he took a wrong path. Somewhere in his life, he got confused. Somewhere in his life, he expected God to come through for him, and he didn't. Somewhere in his life, he broke a law, and then he broke another one, and then another one, and another one, until it all caught up with him, and the Roman government caught up with him and captured him. We don't know this guy. We don't know his his name, but you can look at his circumstance, and you can look at his situation, and you can understand quickly the guy has been on the wrong path. And later we'll learn he blames God for it. He was tried He was convicted for a crime. We don't know what he did, but it was serious. It was serious. The Romans had all kinds of criminals, all kinds of people that they arrested for breaking laws. And most of them would be sold into slavery. Most of them would be sent out to a ship to be a a rower on a Roman galley. But only for the worst of the worst. Only for the men that we need to make an example to all the rest of the community, 
they were set up to be crucified. This guy was condemned to be crucified and executed on a cross. It was the worst day, it was the worst way to die imaginable. And our guy knew it. They tell us from reading uh, the history that prisoners who were condemned to be executed on a cross preferred suicide over the cross. He knew that it could take days for someone to die on a cross. He had seen the humiliation. They would strip the person completely naked, take them outside the city, nail them to a beam, string them up high for people to walk by and see. People would hurl insults at them, and people would yell at them and profanities and spit at them. And here's why they did it. Whether they believed the person was innocent or guilty, they didn't want the Romans to think that they were friends or with the guy on the cross. Because if they did, then they would suspect you. So we also know that the guy was alone. He was abandoned. Everyone in his life, his family, his friends, anyone that was in his life would have disowned him. They would have not wanted to be part of the humiliation. The cross meant that everyone would forsake him. All of his friends and families. There was no hope. And even on the cross, he realized that even his God forsook him. Everyone might have forsaken him that day. And it was a terrible scene. But he wasn't alone. For on that day, two other men were condemned to die. I happen to think that he knew one of them. I think one of the criminals, that that the two criminals knew each other and may have even been caught together. They may have even been plot together. They may have been committing crimes together. And they were condemned to die. But there was a third man that day. And even in this guy's humiliation, and even in this, this scene of this going out through the city and out to the cross to be crucified, to, to the place to be crucified, the guy still wouldn't get the spotlight that day because there was a certain man named Jesus who had also been condemned. This guy was a local celebrity rabbi. Everyone knew who Jesus was. And the fact that they were crucifying him because just a few days earlier, the whole city wanted to crown him king of the Jews. So everyone knew who this guy was. And they wanted to see the guy the guy who could make the lame walk, the guy who could make the blind see, the guy who actually raised the man from the dead. When the Romans went to put him on the cross, they wanted to know what was going to happen. So everyone was looking at Jesus. And that brings us to our text today. We'll have it up on the screen for you if you want to follow along. In your online church, you can actually click uh, Bible and follow along. Go, we're going to be in Luke Luke, the 23rd chapter, we begin at verse 32, and we're just going to go through verse 46, walk through it. But I want you to see this scene, and here's what I want you to see, is that things are not always as they appear. Luke 23, 32 through 33. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. See, this was a story about Jesus. 
So this is where these two men intersect with Jesus' life. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. That little word crucified is such a small word that has such a huge meaning. I shared with you a little bit about what a crucifixion might be background-wise, but to actually experience it, it's gruesome. It's terrible. It's an awful thing. It's packed with such meaning and so many social and so many uh, social and uh, situations, and, and it was just a terrible thing to experience and be a part of. It was even worse to have been crucified, obviously. But huge crowds of people gathered to watch the humiliation. The scene would have been loud. The scene would have been chaotic. There would have been some women there. They they say that there were women and men there who were wailing for Jesus and they were crying for Jesus. They were ready to die for Jesus. There were many that had abandoned him, even his own disciples. We know that the the two criminals would have been hurling insults at the Romans and at the crowd. It just would have been a chaotic scene, very loud and chaotic. But in the middle of all that chaos, in the middle of all that was going on, people were screaming and yelling and spitting and and cursing and all this that was going on. They heard a quiet voice of a man nailed to a cross, praying. He was praying. And here's what he said. Jesus said, Father, picture the chaos. Picture the screaming, the yelling, the pain of the cross, the people, the noise. And in the middle of all that, you hear this voice. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Jesus says the unthinkable. Jesus says the unthinkable. Jesus does the unimaginable. Who is this guy? Can you imagine being one of the criminals and sitting there and listening to this and while you're hanging there, nailed to this cross, waiting to die? And all the chaos, and you hear this guy say, Father, forgive them. They do not know what... Who is this guy, right? Oh, and did I also uh, tell you that he was falsely accused? They made up stories about him. They pushed this through. He was dying for something that wasn't even a capital offense. And there he is in pain and suffering, nailed to a cross, and he's praying. He's praying that God would forgive them. Jesus actually was praying not for himself, but for others. Imagine what went through the minds of those criminals. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Are you kidding me? They've done this a hundred times. They know exactly what they're doing. Verse 35. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. 
They said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. So here are all these leaders. Jesus is nailed to a cross. The criminals are screaming and yelling. The people are screaming and yelling. The leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and maybe even the high priest was there. And they come up and they begin to sneer and make fun of Jesus. And here's Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This happened so close to town, and Jesus being so popular, everyone would have been there and heard this. Here's the thing that we know about the leaders. They were constantly trying to trip Jesus up. They were constantly trying to humiliate Jesus, but Jesus always came back to them, and Jesus always helped them see how wrong they were and helped the crowd see how wrong they were. And they were always trying to get him, but now they had him. And they're sneering at him. And they're screaming at him. And they're making fun of them. And they're challenging him. Bring yourself off that cross if you're the Messiah. They had him. They were emboldened by Jesus' helplessness. And they're like, we got you. Get yourself out of this one. And everyone's watching this. Some were sneering and scoffing because their hopes were dying on a cross. Their hopes. A lot of people had put their hope in Jesus. A lot of people had thought, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. This is the king that's going to come and make everything right. And there he was, dying on a cross. Some people sneered because they hated him. And some people sneered because they were disappointed in him. That he wasn't helping them. He wasn't getting them out of their situation. They thought that they were seeing another wannabe, another promise-keeping God, another king, kingdom-heralding person. And there he was, dying on a cross. And here's what they really thought. Here's what the people all around that were sneering and making fun and shouting, you saved yourself, come down. Here's what they were really thinking. They were thinking this. You got our hopes up, man. And you've disappointed us. You must be an imposter. Because if you were really God, you'd help us here. If you were really God, you'd come down off that cross and you would overthrow these Romans. And you'd do what we need you to do for us. Because our life is hard under Rome. It's not right that we're under Rome. You've disappointed us. You got our hopes up. I believed in you, and you let me down. I put my faith in you, and you didn't help me out. I hoped in you. My life is a mess. I'd hoped that you would save my marriage, and you didn't. My life is going wrong. And I'd hoped you'd help me with my job situation and you haven't. I'd hoped that my life would have turned out different and it hasn't. And I put my faith in you and I trusted in you and you let me down. 
I hoped that my situation would change, and here I am, disappointed with life, looking for someone to blame, and guess what? There's a man on a cross that I can blame. There's a God that's supposed to come through, and He hasn't. Let's blame Him. Because if He's God, then things should be different. Verse 36. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So even the non-believing Romans are saying, Hey, yeah, we'd like to see this. That'd be a God we could believe in. There was written a notice above him who read, which read, This is the king of the Jews. At this point, the criminals could not stay quiet. You imagine all this going on, and they're standing there, sitting there next to the would-be king, the would-be God, the would-be Messiah, and they get their hopes up. Yeah, if you're, if you're God, the Messiah, get yourself down, and us too, right? They too were compelled to join in the abuse. Verse 39. One of the criminals, who's our character today, hung there, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah, like everyone around here saying? I've heard of you. I've, I've seen you. Matter of fact, didn't you just raise a guy from the dead? It's all over the city. If you can do that, save yourself. And look, and us. And us. You healed them. You raised people from the dead. You're supposed to be part of the solution, not the problem. If you are God, this should not be happening to you. If there is a God, this should not be happening to me. What the criminal was really saying, you're not God. You can't be. God would not allow this. God couldn't allow this. He thought that his life, as his life went, so God must go. The relationship between his life and his God got blurred. And he equated the sum total of his experience to the goodness and who God is. And those are two completely different things. They are in relationship to each other, but they are not the same. What the criminal was saying to us was, you're not God. He had no reverence for God, no fear for God, and why not? What had God ever done for him? But here's the twist of our story today that Luke wants us to see. Here is this man who is hurling insults at his God. And when he asked the question, where was God in all of this? Here's the irony. He was just a few feet away. In COVID-19 days, he would be six feet away. He was just a few feet away. The other criminal had a different perspective, though, on the reality. And I want to bring him into our story because this guy helps us understand what was really happening between Jesus and our character today 
who did not believe in Jesus. Both criminals, both of them, had most things in common. They might have been friends or accomplices. They might have, you know, been in cahoots with each other. The difference was not how life treated them. The difference between these two was not how things turned out for them. But in the middle of the insults, the other criminal gets quiet. He doesn't hurl insults at Jesus. He doesn't tell Jesus, why don't you get yourself down and save us too? This criminal gets quiet and somber. He sees something in Jesus that is unique. He sees something in Jesus that is unhuman in a way. That only a God could do. He sees something in what Jesus did on the cross and says on the cross that changed his life forever. He sees something in Jesus that's different than a criminal. A selflessness. An other-centeredness that only the God of his childhood, the God that he had heard of from his mom and his dad, the loving, never-ending, loving God of Israel. He hears those words, Father, forgive them. And it changed him. He realized in that moment, this is not a criminal, but this is a righteous and a good man. Luke 23, 40, look what he says. But the other criminal rebuked him. He rebuked the criminal. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, rebuke is a hard word. He warns him, stop! Don't do that! Wait! We got it wrong. We got it wrong. But this guy, this guy got it right. There's something different about him. Stop! Don't you fear God? Verse 41. Something was different, he says. So we are punished justly. Look, he says, we, you and me, we got punished justly. For we are getting what our, listen, our deeds deserve. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. Something was different. Something changed for this criminal. He was not drawing conclusions about a God based on his way of life, but he took ownership of his life. He says, I'm getting what I deserve, but this guy... He does not deserve this, and yet He still loves us and them. There's something different. Listen, Jesus' love and passion for God and others changed this man's perspective of who God was. If an innocent man who suffers like a guilty man if an innocent man suffers like a guilty man, can trust God. How much more could a guilty man have faith when there is something 
when there is some justification for his suffering. I think that's what went through this guy's mind. If this innocent man can suffer as a guilty man and still trust God, how much more can I trust God being a guilty man? He chose to not blame God for his life situation. The other criminal had this aha moment and he realized that Jesus must be the Messiah. He must be God in the flesh because no one can do what he did in that situation. He is the king. And here's what he says. I want to, I want, and he wanted the king to remember him when he came into his paradise. Look, then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Remember me. Not because of what I've done, but in spite of everything I've done. Think about that. In spite of everything I've done. Not that you're a God who equals my experiences, but my experiences need a God that can help me with my experience. My experiences, my life, I need a God that's different than that. So when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Verse 43, Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Here's what Jesus is saying to him. You ready for this? Hanging there on a cross, dying, suffering, and agony for something he did not do, looks to a man who is guilty for everything he did. And Jesus says, My love for you, my thoughts about you, are not the reflection of what's happening to you. I love you. I will not forget you. I am not what you are going through right now. But I'm here to be with you through it. Verse 44. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Last verse. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Things are not always as they appear. It is easy to confuse God with life. Have you confused God with your life? Have you blamed God for the things that are happening in your life? Maybe drawn conclusions about who God is based on what you've experienced? Perhaps you're a skeptic today. Perhaps that you just have a hard time believing a God would allow what's happening in our culture and in our world. Perhaps you have a hard time understanding or believing in a God that would allow the things to happen that happen in our world. Somewhere in your life you dared to trust God, but life went sideways. And you drew some conclusions about who God is based off of your experience. And now you just choose to not believe. If God exists, then 
and that's how you live. Perhaps you're just bitter today. You're angry and bitter. Not that you don't believe God, but you just don't want to bow your knee to a God that you can't trust. You can't submit to Him. It's hard to trust and submit to anyone who's let you down. Our pride gets in the way. Perhaps you just feel God is disappointed when you. So you keep God at an arm's length. You believe in Him. You don't want to be too far away from Him. But you just live with this constant disappointment that you feel like God's just disappointed with you. The things you've done, the things you've said, the places you go, the the things in your past. And you just feel like God's just disappointed in me. Listen, God is not the sum of your life experiences. He is in spite of my experiences. He is in spite of my experiences. Jesus' life, especially on the cross, shows us that God is about redeeming our past redeeming our experiences, redeeming our marriages, redeeming our sins, redeeming our failures, redeeming our regrets, redeeming all of the experiences of our life. God is a God who redeems, not rebukes. God is not your life. Jesus came to give you life in all of that. He came to give you a new perspective, a new way to view God and our experiences, a new way to live. In the middle of his suffering, he loved us in spite of us. And if we would be honest this morning, we all see a little bit of this bad boy of Easter in ourselves. But in your doubt, and in your anger, and in your unbelief of God, and your untrusting of God, blaming Him for your life experiences, today you might just simply find Jesus, in spite of all of that, loving you from the cross. Loving you nailed to the cross, saying these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Listen, God is closer than you think. He's simply a few feet away if you'll trust Him today. Beth's going to come and she's going to close out this service and she's going to sing a great song called Everything. Here's what I ask you to do. If you're at home, you're huddled around your computers, you've got your kids, your spouses, your friends. Um, If you're there, there's an opportunity for you to give your heart and life to Jesus today to just separate your life and God and realize God is not my life. Things are not always as they appear. That you can trust Him because He's a God who died on a cross for you. And He said, Father, forgive them because I love them. You can trust that. If you would trust that today, you can raise your hand when the salvation uh, opportunity comes up Or just say, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know more about knowing God. And uh, we will get in touch with you and we will let you know 
how you can do that from where you're at. So raise your hand, fill out the form while Beth sings this song, Everything.